Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Drew Herman It's at Alexana in Dundee. It's July 7th, 2023. Drew, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question is why wine? That's a great question. Um, I needed to pay off my student loans and farming carrots wasn't cutting it. So I got into the booze business. But I started making wine when I was around 12. Um, in Oklahoma under my bed and uh, I didn't really think there was a career in that until my father-in-law told me about doing it for work. Okay, we're gonna pick that up in a minute. So tell us about, tell us about life before wine. You mentioned growing up in Oklahoma. Tell us about kind of growing up uh, where you're born and raised. Yeah, so I was born in uh, Colville, Washington and I lived in Cheney until I was 12. My uh, family has a ranch in northeastern Washington and my dad got a job when I was around 12, and we moved to Shawnee, Oklahoma, which was a huge life change. Um, just even culturally, it was so different. Like my first day of school, I remember showing up to school and the kids were really confused by the shoes I was wearing because they were Vans, and they asked me, what are you gonna wear tomorrow, school buses? <laughs> um, so that took some adjustment. But yeah, it was, it was a very cool, I mean, it was very rural, like all dirt roads. It was on the reservation, the Pottawatomie Reservation. And um, I really got into agriculture then. I was in FFA and rodeo and all the country kids stuff, middle school keggers. And why did you start making wine under your bed? Uh, that was because we had a revolutionary era job fair in sixth grade and everybody had to pick a job and I was really drawn to the idea of being a tavern keep because I grew up in a very evangelical family and I knew that was just taboo enough to piss my parents off and then I started reading obsessively about producing alcohol and realized that it was really easy to make. So I took some, uh, some you know, like the Schwanz truck mm -hmm. that drops up? Yeah, so I took some frozen juice concentrate and, uh, and I fermented that under my bed and it, it turned into something that would do the trick. It, um, it tasted pretty gross, but would probably sell in Brooklyn. And, um, I brought that to school and uh, they just thought it was juice when I was pouring it for all the other kids and then they realized what I was doing and I got sharply reprimanded. But that was when I realized that alcohol could get you uh, attention, good or bad. So what was, once you moved to Shawnee, uh, tell me about kind of the rest of the time there and like when you got to high school, what were you sort of thinking about as a next step? Yeah. So. That's a good question. I don't really think I knew what I wanted to do. There was all sorts of things. My, I really thought that maybe I wanted to be a doctor. My mom really thought that I should be a lawyer because I was so good at arguing. And, um, but I was really in 
I was really into farming. I was really drawn to the culture. And since I was in FFA, I had pigs, sheep, cows, all those things. But then I really got into like soil judging and horticultural judging and all <laughs> these weird, like obscure clubs. And I would compete at the local land grant college for plant identification. And I had a knack for it. And I really was into plants, but I didn't really know I was into plants until like college probably. But that was just what I spent most of my time doing that. And I did rodeo for a while and uh, I was a terrible bull rider, um, but I did it for a while. Uh, mostly to get girls, but like casts weren't as attractive as I thought they would be. Um, and then and then after, after I graduated college, I spent some time in Texas at this like weird Christian cult that my parents sent me to, and in Tyler, Texas. <laughs> uh, it was a leadership academy. Uh, the founder of that, I think, was like arrested by the FBI, and now he sells insurance. Um, but yeah, I did that, and then like for that place, we had like. Um, we would do like these large like stadium events where you'd travel around the world and and you know make a bunch of kids cry and we had like the the music director for Joel Osteen's church train me and which was surreal and so that was the first time that I was like on stage like a lot and um, definitely became comfortable in front of people talking to people. And uh, yeah, that was a weird trip. So after that year in Texas, uh, I moved back to Shawnee. And then I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And so I decided that I did want to be a doctor. So I started off in community college because I thought that would be uh, just a good way to get some easy credits. And at, after about one year at community college, the professors there strongly encouraged me to go to a real college. And so I got a job, and I got licensed as a CNA and worked in a nursing home to get some experience in the med field. And I basically like changed diapers for a living, and I, like caught shit all day. And um, went to college with you know a little medical background and started went into pre med at University of Oklahoma, and did that for. It took me like six years to get through because I worked like three jobs the entire time. But around my junior year, I just changed my degrees up entirely because I got really into plants again. I started taking electives in botany and, and I think I smoked weed for the first time and that made me really like plants. And so then I started rethinking everything and I was like, I don't want to be inside all day, man. So I started a little ag entrepreneur business in my basement. <laughs> and then I got really into plants because it paid. And then I realized Oklahoma was not the place for me to be to do that. And so I moved to Oregon um, to get into that business full time and did that for a few years, spent some time in Humboldt and then was like, this is terrible. It's full of drug dealers. And then I was like, maybe I want to be a veggie farmer. So then I got into veggies, real hardcore. And worked at um, Zenger. They had a farming apprenticeship, Zenger Farms in Portland, Oregon. Did that for a year, met my wife there. 
And then we worked at Savi Island Organics together and that was pretty fun and low paying. And I had asked my father's or my, my wife's father for permission to marry her because I'm from Oklahoma. And he was basically like, yeah, you can, but not if you stay farming veggies. Like, what if you guys have a kid? You know, you can't do any of that. And he was really into wine. And I had been brewing beer after, after I made wine as an adolescent. I think when I was like 18, uh, a girlfriend at the time bought me like a beer brewing kit, so then I got really into brewing beer. And so I had been doing all that, but I'd never thought about it as a career. And so um, he really strongly encouraged me to do it, to, to reach out, and I was like, I have no experience, because I think the outside observer thinks the bar for entry to wine is, you know, pretty hard. and. Um, I've said this before, but it's funny now that I'm in the business, like all you really need is like an English lit degree or something like that, because the bar is pretty low. We really just need bodies, you know, most of the training can happen in-house. And so I applied to like five places and every one of them offered me a job and I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And so I had my pick of people and I decided to go, um, with an older guy who had been around for 20-something years, Mike Halleck. He has Carabella Vineyards up on uh, Para Mountain. And he, um, he was really cool. The reason I wanted to work there is because I knew I'd be the only employee. And he was like, yeah, I'll teach you everything I know. And that's all I was really interested in. I just really wanted to know like every piece of the business. And so working there, I got to help him farm, I got to make all the wine, and then he sent me on national sales too. So, you know, two years in, I had years, like, you know, a decade of experience of just like all the different things I could do. I was doing event planning, running the tasting room, built the tasting room, you know. Um, it was really cool, really cool experience. But I think that I, I wanted more. I was young, you know, and, and really hungry for more and more and more. And so I negotiated uh, me going to New Zealand to work for a while. And I ended up at um, Amosfield uh, Winery in Central Otago because of a, a contact I had there, Ben Lean. He's the assistant winemaker there currently and has his own wine label over there. But I had met him because Carabella's wine was made out of Union Wine Company. And he was an intern there. So he hooked me up with a job there and that experience was pretty profound for me. Mostly because who I was working with there. Amosfield had, had, a, had a great winemaker on staff, but they also had a custom crush client. Um, Profits Rock was made out of there at the time. And the uh, consulting winemaker for Profits Rock was Francois Mier from uh, De Vogue in Burgundy. And it was a really cool experience to see Amosfield, the way they were making wine. They were farming organically, but they were also doing like 600 tons native ferment, mostly natural. And the Custom Crush guys were 
not even doing punch downs. They were just taking like one gallon watering can over the top once a day and just making lines in ways that like I learned in Oregon is how you make, you know, high end balsamic. And so there was, it was, it just fundamentally changed what I believed. And I think when I came back to Oregon, you know, I was very ready for change and I was very ready to, to be like, hey, look what I learned. And I think um, as any business owner would do when the young guy comes in and wants to change anything up, they like, you know, put the brakes on me. And I realized that rather than get bitter, it was probably just time to move on. And so since I was really into this idea of natural wine, there was a job for um, division wine company, assistant winemaker and Southeast Wine Collective manager so I applied for that job and got it. And that was a really cool experience. It was an urban winery and it was, you know, natural wine. And there was like, I feel like the first year there was like 12 custom crush clients out of this like car garage. We were doing like close to 200 tons in the middle of the city in this tiny building, half the ferments are outside. And you had to be really creative to make the wine and to make it good. And there, there was several cool aspects of that job. One was just the people I was exposed to. Uh, Tom and Tom Monroe and Kate Norris are pretty well connected. So we had really cool people coming through the door, really cool winemakers, cool distributors, lots of writers. And we also had lots of varietals of fruit that I had never worked with before. I had pretty much only done Pinot Chardonnay Pinot Gris and some Shannon and Sauve in addition to those in New Zealand. But at Division, we worked with literally every variety that is grown around here and in Washington. And that was really cool. And they used a lot of, you know, fun ferment vessels, lots of concrete, lots of carbonic ferments, lots of things that are like, you know, ready by February to bottle and then pushed out the door. And that was a really cool experience because it was just kind of like this massive lab. Mm -hmm. And they were very open um, to running experiments or doing things in alternative ways. And we were like definitely one of the first ones in Oregon with an orange wine on the market. They were the first ones, you know, with like, you know, method carbonique specific wines and pet gnats and, and Thankfully, not paquettes, but we we almost did. We messed around with them, but yeah, it was a really cool it was a really cool spot, and in uh, 2020 happened, and and you know, I think I was the only one kept on during that time, so there was a lot of time in the cellar alone, and that was nice, and I think. Um, I think like then I really like during 2020 I was I was just like man I really need to get back to farming. It's like my first love. Like the urban winery is cool because I was living in Portland and on a floating home and and then all of those things were great and it was a fun life experience. But I was like man I really miss just farming full time. And so um, at the beginning of of 2021. Um, I left Division and went to J.K. Carrier because they just needed bottling help. And my wife at the time was managing Johan Vineyards, um, which was down in Eola Amity or near Rickreal. 
and she was driving every day, but she had a bun in the oven and that wasn't gonna be sustainable very much longer. So I just took this bottling gig at JK Carrier just to you know get closer to her work. And we started looking for a house in McMinnville to buy. And then like three days after, yeah, it was three days after I started at JK Carrier, I had been experiencing like a lot of like weird things, like my tongue was felt like it was getting electrocuted at night, like by a car battery. And all these weird things were happening. And so I went to the doctor and they were like, well, it's probably due to like head injuries sustained from uh, wrestling and rodeo. And I was like, okay, that sucks. And they're like, we're gonna do a CAT scan on you. And they did a CAT scan on me. And within like two hours, they called me back. And I was like, that's not good. So they put me on waiting and the music, the music on the, um, on the waiting line was dun 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 dun, dun 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 dun. And I was like, oh, great. And they got on the phone and they're like, Mr. Herman, Mr. Herman, I'm so glad you answered. Okay, I have terrible news, but it's the best news of terrible news. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, you have the best kind of brain tumor you can have. And I was like, oh. And so my wife was three months out from having a baby. I was closing on a house. I had just started a new job. And I found out that I had to have like emergency surgery. And, um, that was a lot for, it was definitely a lot for my wife too, because, you know, like her, her husband might be dying and I'm like really good at disassociating. So I was pretty fine during most of it. Um, but we were like, I was like, I'm never going to financially recover from this. And, um, Jim Prosser at JK Carey really stepped in. He kept me on payroll so I could close the house, even though I was out for like three months. He gave me just like a lump sum of cash. And then the Oregon wine industry um, did a huge fundraiser for me. And they basically paid off all of my medical bills, plus the bills that my wife Elise had from having a baby, and then all the medical bills for my baby Cy when he was born, which was incredible. It was something that I just didn't think like was possible, but like, I definitely at that, when all that happened, I was like, well, this is definitely a community worth like giving back to, um, because so much was given to me. And it was really interesting, like the people that just like came out of the woodwork to like help us out. It was, it was truly incredible. But after that happened, um, right when I got back from, from surgery, cause I was supposed to take like months off, but like 30 days later, I was like back in the saddle, cause, which in retrospect was stupid. But um, it was just like, I didn't know how to sit still. I didn't want to sit still, cause I would have to like process feelings if I did. And nobody wants to do that. So I just went straight back to work. And when I was back at work, um, work finished that farming season with Jim. And then that following winter, he was like, hey, I would like it if you just took over the vineyard management position here. And which was really, really cool opportunity because I mean, I, I definitely was qualified for it, but I, not like, um, not a huge 
huge self-promoter for things that are good for me. If it's something that makes me look like a terrible piece of shit, I'm usually lean into it pretty hard, but, but not good things. So he really pushed me to do that, and so I did. And um, he gave me a lot of free reign, but he was also, uh, the way he works is he likes to go over every possible scenario. So if you have an idea, he wants like you to prove it to him, which it was terribly frustrating, but also like really good for me because it made me like have to put all my thoughts and ideas on paper. And, and it was awesome. And you know, within a single season uh, of you know, smart farming and smart foliar applications, we increased yield and had much healthier plants and he was he was really into this the style of farming that I brought to him and it was a style that was pretty um, it was pretty influenced by my previous farming experiences in, in vegetables and soil health and cannabis and all of those things because I've always believed that like everything you need is there already and that and that farming with jugs of brought in products is like probably not sustainable in the long term. And he really let me just try these ideas that I was totally sold out to and believed in. And, and he, says, he said to me, even when I was leaving to come here, he said, what you really brought to this place was proof of concept. And that was what Alex Onan was really interested in, is, is they want to take this site and all their sites organic and beyond that, like do more than just be sustainable, because sustainable is cool, but that but that just means like sustaining status quo. And they really wanted to be pushing farming, like push push the idea of soil health and site health and, and employee health to you know the forefront of, of the portfolio. And they've given me an opportunity to come here and switch all that up, which is pretty awesome. Um, and that's where why I'm here. <laughs> well, we've heard a lot of interesting stories. Uh, that's pretty high up there in the interesting story list. Um, before I go on into wine, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit more about your time in Texas with the Christian Colt. I think you. <laughs> I feel like we need at least like one good story or something from your time there. Okay, so when I started there, and, and why were you there? Because um, I'm a bad boy. Um, so I grew up very like backcountry evangelical. Um, I think that it's not that weird for where I grew up. Where I grew up was like the belt buckle of the Bible Belt, and and there's this weird mix of like Christianity there, and then also like spiritualism. And so it's like the the I grew up kind of like, Mom, I'm sorry in like voodoo Christianity. And that was just the way it was. Like a lot of like tongue talking, a lot of traveling preachers coming in that could see demons and angels. And of course they saw a demon on me, you know, those sort of like situations. And so like we were heavily, th those regions are heavily marketed to by, um, uh, how do I say this in a PC way, predacious pastors. Um, that wasn't very PC. Total bastards is what I mean. And those guys would come through. So there's this guy in Texas that started this big Christian leadership academy that was a total cult. But he sold this idea that like if you sent your kids to him, he would turn them into like 
leaders for God, and the place was very heavily politically influenced. Like he he was on he was on Bush he was Bush's advisor to youth council at the time, and this was like back when Texas politics was like in control of the nation. Like they would like put us on buses to take us to the voting booths, you know, and like and make sure that we were voting for God, kind of situation. And so I got sent there to become a, a good leader, and. Uh, after I was there for like, it was crazy rules, like no dating, no secular music, no secular movies, you know, secular's bad. Um, so it was very, very brainwashy. And I like naturally as a person, am slightly rebellious. And so, and also I had grown up kind of that way. So it was very easy for me to like follow the rules while still like living my own life. And so my first job when I was there was to call kids around the country and try to get them to um, come on these, these trips that, where we would take them around the world on, and, you know, as, as uh, missionaries. But it was really kind of like missionary tourism. And I was really good at signing these kids up. So good that, that these kids would commit to it and then their parents would call and be like, that guy's a used car salesman. What did we sign up for? And I got in a lot of trouble because I was signing up too many people. And I was like, well, this is terrible. But at the same time, the person that was in charge of music for this place quit and wrote a letter to the, the top dog that was like, Drew is the person that should take over this position. Because I grew up in a very musical family. And um, this person had, had seen me you know, performed several times and they were like, Drew should take over, which was great timing because that job, that person at that job had far less rules than anybody else. And so it kept me, kept me there for a year and I got, um, you know, a lot of like really good production experience for like music. Like, you know, I learned all the equipment and it, we had, I mean, it, I think something crazy like 75% of all music equipment sales in the US is church, churches buying them. And so that was, so I, I was like using top end gear that was like, you know, like millions of dollars for the stuff. And I had a band and we practiced every day and I didn't have to like wake up at six and run with the other people because I was allowed to have coffee and write songs. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so I did that for a year and then, went, and then graduated. And when I, was, when I graduated from there, they gave me an award, Bachelor to the Rapture, which I still have. My wife loves it. And anyway, well, I, I came back to Oklahoma and that's when I went to school. And then I, I, I got a science degree and it was kind of hard to like have a science degree and then still like be sold out to that culture and so I quickly became very less religious and instead I became a bartender and um, yeah that was kind of like my my big intro into the alcohol industry and I remember when I was in college I was like god man perfect job one day I hope I can become a beer rep that'd be so sick and now that sounds like the worst job in the world Anyway, that was a long way to tell that time in Texas, but. I feel like there's so much more there. Yeah, there's so much. We can actually talk about, I've actually been interviewed about that for sure. It's crazy. I can only imagine. <laughs> that was one of the songs we sang. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, anyway, moving on. Um, Oregon. So you chose Oregon for awesome reasons. I'm very excited about those reasons. Um, what were your first impressions of, of Oregon? Of, well, I came to visit while I was in college, and I think the coolest thing about Oregon is this is a state where, or at least in the Portland area, and I mean even out in McMinnville, you're like highly encouraged to be an individual and fly your freak flag. Where I was from is very oppressive, and like if you were different, there was a lot of like slurs heading your way, and I was very different. I wore like skinny jeans and deep V's because I. Don't judge me. But I was just like way, way not Oklahoma. And, and it's funny too, because I'm still friends with all my like backcountry friends that like work on oil rigs and punch cows for a living. But they definitely think I'm the weirdo. But they're all proud of me, and they think it's cool what I'm doing now. But I remember coming to Oregon and just like, like I have a really good friend named Mateo, who's the DJ in Portland called DJ Montel Spinoza, and like he kind of like grabbed me by the neck the first week I was there, and was like, "Dude, you need to just be yourself. Like, you need to just go after what you want. Like, who? What are you doing?" And he's still that way with me, which is good. But he um, he was pretty influential early on on making me just examine like my own thought life and how I spoke about myself and to myself and and you know like what I believed was possible for me. And, and I remember going, going home and uh, back to Oklahoma and just being like, man, this is so stupid. And I had a, a girlfriend at the time and she had a sister that lived up here. And so we just like basically right when college finished, we like a month later packed our bags and, and just moved out here with no job except I did. I mean, I made money, but it was trimming weed in basements for like the first year, and um, which was awful because I have severe allergies. So I would like have to wear like a gas mask the whole time, and um, yeah. Anyway, I think that's a pretty common story in the veggie farming community specifically. Like everybody farms like you know, cool microgreens all day long, and then on the weekends they make money and sitting in people's basements or used to. Now it's legal. But that was back when there was money, money in cannabis because it was very legal and all headed toward DC and New York. But yeah, I probably got off topic there. But. No, it's, that's, that's great. Um, so when your father-in-law mentioned wine and being into wine, and, and, and what, what, were your, what were your sort of thoughts of, of wine at that time, uh, interest in wine, and what were your kind of initial impressions as you got into the industry? I remember being like, I feel like this is a good time to use an, an expletive. I, I think I remember looking at the industry and just being like, fuck monocrops. Like, I was like, that's terrible for the environment. Like, absolutely not. And then I came around to the idea. And I think that um, I still have that in me, which is probably why I pursue the idea of, of no-till and diverse cover crops, multi-species cover crops, and, and sheep on vineyards. And I think that all of that is influenced by, by my time farming things that you know, uh, weren't monocrops. Because in, in a veggie system, we might, you know, here we harvest once a year. In a veggie system, we harvest once a week. 
you might have up to 100 different crops within one season and you know lots of crop rotation lots of really smart planning of what's planted next to avoid certain you know pressures of what other some phylums or aphids or whatever and and it takes a lot of it takes a lot of brain power to farm veggies but it it is definitely not um, as lucrative and um, as, as wine is. Grapes, there's no money in just grapes alone, but wine, you know, that value added part of it is, is crucial. And I think, I think while I was at Carabella, I was really pushing Mike to go no-till and he had already been experimenting with native cover crops. He's one of the first guys I know that was, but he was trying to bring back, his, his wife was really into uh, restoration ecology and stuff like that. So they were doing a lot of like oak savanna restoration on small scale and, and native cover crop restoration. And I was really into pushing that idea. Um, and he was really open to it too, as long as it made sense uh, financially, because he sold most of his fruit. So he, he needed the, he just needed to not come in under on farming. And, and in that system, he was able to, he was, I know a lot of farmers and he, I think he's always been pretty proud of the fact that he has a profitable, great farming business, which is hard to do, to like, you know, come in in the black every year. But yeah, yeah. And then, and then at JK Carrier, that was the second opportunity I got to really dig into native cover crops, running sheep, you know, not, not spraying only fungicides, but addressing plant nutrition and doing sap analysis and trying to make healthy crops through good nutrition rather than, you know, just spraying sides. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of, of, of pesticides, insecticides, whatever, the whole idea of going out there and removing competition, it just, I feel like it doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's farming or, or in, in society, but the idea of erasure always has massive consequences. And so I think I've always really been sold out to this idea of inclusivity, like in farming as well as society. And that's kind of the way that I approach things now. It's like not, not just killing things because that doesn't do anything you know, that just, you're just extending the problem, pushing it off to the future, pushing it off to the future and always keeping that at bay. And, and I think that it was really cool at JK Carrier that we started experimenting more with just, you know, life instead of death as, as a farming model and, and finding out that it really does work. And I'm not the only one doing this. Like this is obviously, you know, many people are tackling this problem in the valley, like like uh, Dan Rinke, Mimi Castile, several people, Rob Schultz from Lemelson. At the time when you started at Carabella, especially, uh, what of what you saw, what did you sort of think about the state of Oregon viticulture at that time? Oh, uh, it was it was like I think, like I told you, my perspective was pretty like. Uh, rebellious like from the beginning and I think that back then I like viewed it kind of how all the grape growers here view hazelnut farms you know I would drive by vineyards that were clean tilled and I was like that's a beautiful parking lot with grapes planted in it 
Like, I was pretty negative about it. Like, I understand now that, like, every site needs to be farmed differently. And, and you know, like, there's, we have lots of tools in the toolbox. And just removing tools isn't going to make you a better mechanic, you know? Like, learning how to use them when you need them is what makes a good mechanic. And, and I think that my perspective has changed. I'm not so dogmatic, but I, I definitely have severe preferences. <laughs> I would prefer that everything was, you know, like no-till and, and dry farmed and low, low pesticide use and high nutrition. And I definitely would prefer that, but I also understand that that, isn't, that, that every site is very specific and, and you have to tackle things. That's also the, the politician in me being nice. But. <laughs> we found the politician. Um, Tony, you mentioned time in New Zealand as being kind of a transformative time. What, what opened your eyes there that you hadn't seen already in Oregon? Uh, I think that, like, I hadn't, the places, so I, I was lucky at, um, when I was at Carabella, was, I said we made it out of Union Wine Company. So Union Wine Company, uh, I love everyone there. Uh, very smart heads, but they definitely, they definitely were more conventional in their approach to wine, and for obvious reasons. But there was this, um, there was a much smaller producer making his wine out of the out of the space who was doing things that you know I was told were was impossible. And I, had, I'm a very avid reader, so I read every book I can on wine and farming, and that's kind of like how I procrastinate. And. So, but at the time, Andrew Beckham was making his wine there, and it was when he was throwing his first clay pots and making wine in them and experimenting with native fermentation. And I was seeing that he was having successful results in pursuing these things that were impossible and that were definitely not encouraged by university programs and, you know, the pros. And so that made me really, really interested to head to New Zealand to, to learn that. So when I headed to New Zealand, I was seeing you know large-scale vineyards farmed organically with sheep and, and guinea hens and, and ducks. And, and then when they bring it in the, the cellar, seeing them not use any yeast of any kind and only adding nutrition depending on like how low the juice panel was. You know, in, in Oregon, if it's below like 150, people freak out and they feed it. And in New Zealand, they're like, well, you don't need to feed it. Like, yana is not necessarily the term determining factor. It could be something like low B vitamins or like folic acids and things like that that could be the limiting nutrient in this ferment. And so it's just a different way of thinking it because I think. In conventional winemaking, you just look at one or two numbers and then you adjust those things. Those things are always yams, and it's always TA, and or you know, or pH, or you know, bricks. You, those are the things you adjust, and that's basically it. And in New Zealand, they would do like micro adjustments to specific things, and or or nothing at all. That was the really interesting thing about working in the same building as Paul Pujol from Prophets Rock and Francois is they like didn't touch their ferments. They didn't, they were, they were like, well, we think the biggest problem with Pinot producers is over extraction. And I had never really even heard that term before, over extraction in Pinot, because the big fight was to get extraction, right? Like, you gotta do two punch downs a day, 
you know, you've got to do this. And I think over the years, since 2014, you know, more and more people are doing pump overs only or really dialing that back. But they were doing maybe like two pump overs and one punch down the entire ferment. You know, and the rest of the time they were just like keeping the cap moist. And they weren't feeding and they weren't adding yeast and they were and the wines are beautiful. The wines are absolutely beautiful. And I think that really like changed my mind and and I was just like, oh, okay, like there really is more than one way to skin a cat. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think from that kind of just changed my perspective. And so now I'm not really dogmatic about um, anything in winemaking because there's so many good ways to make wine. And unfortunately, there's lots of tasting panels that, you know, like taste all these different styles and they're like, oh, this is the way. Us five decided it for the entire state. So I, I, I think that that really changed my perspective. I really love winemaking. I love farming more, but like I love winemaking, especially during harvest. I hate bottling. Every time that it's time to bottle, I think about just leaving the country. It is probably the worst thing that's ever been invented. Um, I really want that on record. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll give a good little pregnant pause here so we can let it really sink in. When it comes to winemaking, so obviously you, you, you eventually you end up at Division in Southeast, a, very, a whole different world from, from the Valley. So tell me about getting into that side of winemaking and of the kind of the, the tetrisification of winemaking at, at that facility. Oh yeah. That was, so it was like making wine on top of wine on top of wine. You know, we had insane, we had to flip so many fermenters and we ran out of space because we were so tiny. So I had to learn how to ferment effectively outside. You know, you'd be doing punch downs on the sidewalk, you know, and there'd just be tons of people walking by. And it was really the cool, one of the coolest things about that, that job is like, I got very MacGyvery at making wine. And I realized that you don't need anything except grapes in a container. That's really all you need. And then there's, you know, it, you taste it every day and you make adjustments based on that. Like you don't ever stick to a recipe because in that, in that environment, you couldn't, like you just simply couldn't stick to a recipe. And so we learned lots of cool ways to make wine, like lots of ways to deal with reduction that weren't copper, you know, lots of ways to get oxygen into a white wine without, you know, going over. And that was when I, we, I first started experimenting. Well, I did a little bit at Carabella, but that was when I really started experimenting with like black Chardonnay or like hyperoxidizing white wines, pre-ferment, things like that to make a really clean, beautiful wine. And, and it was almost all because of necessity. And they're in a, a new facility now, which I think everybody should check out down on water. And they have a lot more control over what they can do now, but this is, that's now. Like when, when I was there, it was very much like, like, oh my God, we have 50 tons coming in today. There's no place to put that. I mean, there was times where they would have fermenting macros stacked on top of each other, you know. And, <laughs> and 11 very angry clients. <laughs> well, actually, that, that prompts another question. Uh, handling that kind of atmosphere with all the different people with all their different expectations in that space and you kind of in the middle of all of it, how, how did you sort of carve out your role and, and try to make everybody happy? Well, I said earlier I'm really good at disassociating. So I just completely removed my feelings 
and uh, just handled it every day. That was kind of like the only way to approach it. But the thing is, is um, you know, there was a lot of really cool people making wine there, but a lot, not a lot of them, a lot of them knew a lot about wine, but actual day-to-day -day production didn't. And so their expectations were often like um, outsized to the facility. And so it was mostly just, um, the job was mostly just like getting people to realize where they were, what we were capable of, you know? And it, the funny thing is anybody that's ever worked in a custom crush facility, if you get Brett in your ferment, it's definitely not because of your choices, it's because of that other guy. And so it was, it was a lot of, of being like, yes, okay, I hear you, and no. <laughs> But, you know, I got to work with a lot of really cool people and I got to teach a lot of people what I knew, which was fun. I love teaching. Um, and that was, a, that was what I spent, I think, most of my time doing was teaching people how to do things like set a pump up, you know, things like that. And so it was fun. It was, it was really fun to help people grow their skills. And, you know, and the really cool thing is, is if a lot of times we would get the same fruit in for all of the clients and you'd see them handle it, you know, five different ways. And so you would, it, to me, I always viewed it as a great experiment. You'd see the same macro with the same fruit, you know, run five different ways and you got to taste the uh, consequences mm -hmm. of those choices. And I thought that was invaluable. And I always encouraged that sort of diversification. I would, I would never tell people, oh, you're going to do this wrong or you're going to do that wrong. I'd always be like, oh, let's watch this play out. That's amazing. So along the way, you're obviously, you, you've developed, you're starting to develop kind of your farming philosophy, your vineyard philosophy. Talk about your winemaking style at the time. What were you, how did it kind of follow from the farm? And especially in an environment like that, how much were you able to kind of implement what you wanted to do on, on the grapes? Well, um, you know, Tom and Kate were pretty cool. They let me kind of like run my philosophy and um, within reason, right? But they even did bottlings where I had full control over the wines that went into that bottling. And I, I, my approach to winemaking is similar to farming. I believe in this idea of kind of no-till winemaking where when the wine, and this is definitely because of my time in New Zealand, but the idea of, of, of not homogenizing your ferments and letting these micro pockets of native yeast develop and ferment over time and really just keeping those populations alive through, through moisture, I believe that's a really good way to build complexity. And, and I'm not afraid of oxygen in wine. Like when, when there's EA creeping up in a ferment before a primary takes off, I'm like, awesome, those are great precursors to fruity esters. And, I don't hit it with sulfur or, you know, I'm not worried about that. And if there's a, a little bit of reduction in a ferment, I don't get scared. I am like, great, that's gonna definitely last 18 months in barrel, no problem. I won't have to worry about aldehydes building or anything. So I look at those things very differently. I'm not, I'm not scared of, of, of faults. Uh, I definitely want the wine to be really delicious at the end. So at the end, if it has those faults, like that was obviously a bad choice. But a lot of those things just change over time in barrel. And, and so I, I definitely trust that process. 
And I've seen it play out in really good ways. I've also seen it play out in really bad ways. So I know that you can't just blindly be like, don't do anything, because that is a terrible philosophy. But I definitely am, am not like hyper vigilant about things, you know? I believe in, in uh, it's, <laughs> it's not me, it's, oh, what's his name? Something Smith. Charles Smith, no, whatever. The guy that invented wine secrets, reverse osmosis, and all that stuff, he has a philosophy. Um, for Brett, it, it's an IPM philosophy, like integrated pest management for Brett. And, and I, he definitely has some really, really good points on what he makes. Like, you know, the amount of, the amount of present oxygen, the amount of tannin, the amount of anthocyanin, you know, obviously your pH, these are all things that, you know, can combat spoilage organisms on their own. And so I definitely, that's more my philosophy on the winemaking side is, is, is integrated management, not, um, not pesticides. So you talked earlier about, of course, your, your transition into J.K. Carrier and, and obviously with, with, with brain surgery in the middle of it, a nice fun introduction to there. So at, at the time, as, you're, as you're, you know, you're going through this major life change, you have a baby on the way, it's obviously you're, you're dealing with the pandemic still. Were you ever, did you ever sort of doubt that you would come back to wine or was wine something you were kind of excited to get back to? I think I just needed to make money because I was, I mean, I doubt, so there was like, there was some time after the surgery that I was just home alone with my son and I was like, I'm never working again. This is awesome. And I, and, and my wife, I was like, she's like busting her ass and then like sitting in the bathroom at work, pumping milk and like, you know, coming home and then being a mom too. And I was just like in recovery mode and being like, I could totally be stay at home dad. And honestly, I really could. That actually is the best life in the world. But I had to go back to work, and I'm very glad that I did. Like, I definitely don't want out of wine at all. Uh, I really love what I'm doing currently, too. I love being at JK Carrier. I would have stayed at JK Carrier forever, but I was just given a really good opportunity here. And, and uh, I hope Jim understands that. I'm pretty sure he does. <laughs> he told me it was a good opportunity, too. <laughs> but. Yeah, I, I definitely plan on staying in wine for the long haul. So you mentioned Jacob Carrier, and you mentioned that you said the term proof of, proof of concept, which, which I love. Um, tell me about how you approached what you saw there and how you were able to sort of implement change in such a short time. Yeah, well, I think that to me when I see a plant that's, that's like stunted or not as not isn't showing as much vigor or production capacity as it needs to be like I can't help but ask why and then I just start looking at every possible variable and and there's you know obviously some proven concepts in, um, in in Oregon or things that we know like about our soil types here so we know we have low pH soils we know that our soils are about 40% aluminum sometimes and aluminum is really tricky for plants to deal with. And, you know, there is this idea that, that to change the pH of, of the, the, the growing pH of that plant that you need to go in, throw out several tons of lime per acre and adjust the whole pH up, which, which works and plants definitely respond well to it. But often when you do that, you cause an imbalance with other minerals. And I think that, that uh, to maximize photosynthetic capacity of a plant, you need to have a pretty good balance of all your minerals. And so the first thing 
that we tried to do there was balance our minerals. So we were doing sap analysis, and then we just created this hyper-regimented um, foliar plan, which was mostly different forms of carbon and calcium and silica, because we seemed to have kind of enough of everything. Even our boron levels were fine. And then we also ended up doing a little bit of molybdenum to just kind of like force nitrate conversion. And we saw, honestly, I think the, the, the best thing we did for that site was foliar calcium and not in, not in the form of like jugs, but it was like, a lot of it was like ground crystals, like biodynamics use, but it was at a much higher application rate. It was wollastonite. And um, we would use rock foss which is probably will be gone in 50 years. So use it while you can. But we were really focused on that and we were focused on getting carbon in the plant because what a plant does all day long is it spends all of, its, all of its time making carbon and then tying it up into the form of sugars and then it sends that throughout the plant for reproductive purposes of whether it's tissue growth, fruit growth, whatever. And then it sends whatever's left over to the roots to feed microbes or trades it to those microbes, and those microbes in exchange, it's not like a direct currency exchange, but their exudates are the minerals that they mine for, which might be something that's hard for plants to get, like zinc or copper, or things that often show up low on our tissue testing here. In, in high soil organic matter environments where there's plenty of microbiology, you just don't have those issues. But the way that we currently tackle farming does everything to remove soil organic matter and kill microbiology of the soil. And so the entire focus at JK Carrier was like, yeah, the vines are fine. Let's, our foliar system, we will, we will address the photosynthetic capacity of those plants um, that way. And then we will focus on building soil organic matter. But it doesn't matter how much compost you put out there, a plant a grapevine is going to put so much more carbon in the soil than the amount of compost you can put out in a season. So it really is addressing both of those things. So yeah, that was, that was the idea there. Like give the plant everything it needs to synthesize these proteins and carbon and then make sure that it doesn't have anything stopping the breakdown of those proteins when necessary and, and you know, the, the ability of transfer, translocation of carbon out of the leaves and into the soil. And a lot of that was just, we were really blocked up by aluminum and it seemed that, it, well we had, we have tissue and sap analysis to, to show that. It really seemed like our full year program was really helping that, specifically silica. Mm -hmm. Really seemed to bring that aluminum down to like three parts per million where when the first time we tested it, it was at like 100, which was definitely causing short shoots and things like that. And the minute we started, working on that foliar program, we had no short shoots, or not no, but it was, went from 60% short shoots to like 15% short shoots uh, across the entire vineyard. And the yield was up too, and um, yeah. So that's definitely like, I feel like in these regenerative systems or these organic systems, like just using different, just using organic fungicides is not organic farming. And it's not gonna yield the results you want, it's just, a different poison. And so the idea to me is when you go out there and you're farming organically, you're actively managing the nutrition of the plants. What's different about grapevines than other things that you've farmed? Um, they are a little more high touch. 
Um, well, I say that, but you know, veggies or cannabis is really high touch, like really, really high touch. Honestly, it, uh, this might make people mad, but great farming is so much easier than anything else, besides maybe cereal crops. It is like it is like the gentleman's crop, for a reason. The only reason that farming grapes is hard is trellis systems. Otherwise, it would be very, very simple. But our trellis systems here, VSP is really high touch. And so we have to move it a lot. But if we you know, farmed pergola method or bush vines, it would be much, much less high touch and would make a lot more sense financially. You mentioned getting a, a good opportunity here at Alexander. You, you kind of touched on what sort of the goal is here. So tell me about your first first few months on the job, uh, what have you done so far and what are you kind of looking ahead to as sort of priorities here? So the first thing I did is just look and see where we're spending our, our money, you know, and I'm still, I'm still doing that, but it is really interesting to see like where funds are allocated to, um, how we're currently farming and then doing sap analysis and figuring out the state that our vines are actually in. Um, we're still running the farming program that was written at the beginning of the season. Um, and we will be making some modifications to it next year, specifically in, in regards to plant nutrition. And we will be, we are getting a large herd of sheep soon, uh, hopefully this September. And we will actively start grazing them the minute that the grapes come off. So those are the major changes besides going to organic. The other thing is just like, you know, equipment. What equipment do we have? Is it useful? Is it not? If we own this, why aren't we using it? And, you know, things like that. It's mostly just like looking at the state of things and then, and, you know, figuring out how we can be using things better. But I'm doing this site. I'm also doing Ravana down in Napa and then Corazon del Sol in Argentina. So, um, it keeps me pretty busy. But in, in Napa, I'm working with Jim Barber, who is a really great and smart farmer. But it is interesting, like, like the way they do things in Napa is so different from Oregon. Um, even, even if it just comes down to like the amount of hours that we spend per acre in canopy management, in Napa, they really like things perfect. So they like, I imagine they're going through with chopsticks and just like rearranging each leaf, but I know they're not, but they do. They spend like four times the amount of time on like shoot positioning and that's just like the way things are down there, which, you know, makes sense why the fruit is, you know, four times the price. But um, yeah, it is, it is interesting to look to see like all the different methods and styles and like what is actually driving quality and what isn't, what is just, you know, like preference. And, and I think when the, the big difference in Oregon and California is aesthetically, vineyards need to like look very nice in Napa. They're very into aesthetics. And in Oregon, like we're allowed to be a little stinkier, dirtier, more dready, you know? Like, and that's just like, I would say the different farming styles. But as far as like nutrition and all those things go, Napa is, is in Oregon are pretty similar. It's mostly just like vineyard aesthetics is the big difference between the two places. Before we talk about working on those properties as well, what, was your, what has been kind of your overall impression of the vineyards here as, as, the tra as you're trying to transition into the next stage of farming and how long what kind of timeline are you looking at for like getting them where you want them to be? 
I would say they're in pretty good health. I mean, this is a really cool site. I actually got to work on it back when I worked for Results Partners, um, which I probably haven't mentioned yet. But I worked for Results Partners in 2014, concurrently while I was working with uh, Carabella. And so I got to work on this site, uh, installing drain tile and a few other special projects here and there. And I've always loved this site. It's, it's got 18 different soil types, which is insane. I've never worked on a place that had more than four. But here you can like walk 10 yards and like you're in completely different soil types, which is really interesting from like, you know, an analysis standpoint. Like luckily we have, um, we, you know, we have like LIDAR, or we have drones fly over and we can like look at water stress, photosynthesis, you know, nitrogen load. We can look on that, an overview, but like on a site like this, you can't just be like, okay, in this block, we're gonna do this because that's what this block needs because that block might have six or seven different soil types, which are all responding differently to the nutrient application that you're doing. So to me, I find that fascinating because it really means that anything that I'm dogmatic about is probably bullshit. So, so I really have to like take a step back and like look at that and be like, okay, what is like the general consensus? So like if I get a tissue sample on something here or a sap analysis, it might say that like we're low in like these 50 different things. And then if I look at them differently as ratios to each other, it might be that we're just low on one thing across the board, which is impeding the uptake of everything else. Mm -hmm. So you definitely can't just look at like a bar graph and be like, oh yeah, we're low in copper across the board because it might not be copper. It might be that, you know, that section of the hill is like super low in potassium or super low in just calcium or organic matter. So that's what's cool about this side is that you can really like, you can really like dig in to the data here and like come up with some really interesting, you know, um, ideas of what's, what's going on. And there's also just tons of different varietals here. So I would say overall the vineyard's in pretty good health. Um, our yield could be much better, for sure. And we just planted another vineyard um, right over the hill, Kinney Ranch, which is next door to two barns and kind of kitty corner to us here. And that's also different soil types from this place. And so it is really interesting. I'm, I'm gonna work on like, I don't know, like 27 different soil types, I feel like, just on these two sites. And that's a cool experience. I'm pretty much only have ever done Nakaya, Jory, and some, you know, and a little bit of Wetzel and some Willow Kinsey. So to me, this is really cool just to see like, you know, how vines in different pockets of the same block respond. So you mentioned obviously Dr. Ravana's other two properties in Napa and in Argentina. Uh, tell me about getting to know those and how you're going to sort of balance your time and, and work across them. Sure. Um, well, my first day of work when I started here they, was flying to Napa and hanging out with the doc for a week and going through the vines there and meeting our uh, Jim Barber and all of those guys down there. And, and um, that was really interesting and fun and cool. And I had never really worked in a Napa vineyard before, and it was it was pretty incredible to like see Napa um, from the farming side of it, and not like the the tasting side. And I think that down there, since we have uh, really good partners down there, they they it's it's interesting. They don't really do any sort of analysis um, in Napa. Jim's Jim doesn't even do crop estimates. 
because he's been doing it for 30 years. He can walk out in a vineyard and be like, four tons. Like, he just can't. He's been doing it 30 years. So it is interesting. It is interesting. But, uh, you know, down in, I think the difference between California and here is, is in California, most of the, most of the um, vineyard management companies or large companies, they're not writing their own spray programs or anything like that. They're, they're using, you know, the personal crop advisor from the fertilizer company. And so, you know, it's definitely a consultant model for everything in California. You have your consulting winemaker, your consulting vineyard manager, your consulting crop advisor. You just, it's lots of consultants. Where in Oregon, you know, you are all of those things for yourself. I mean, there are definitely consultants up here, but like, it's, it's very different from, from that perspective. So it is really interesting when, when I went down there to find out that like there wasn't one person in charge of everything. There was, you know, one advisor for everything. So that was the, that was the big difference down there. And I think what we're trying to do in-house for the Ravana portfolio is, is try to move a lot of that work, you know, under our own umbrella. And it, I think that economically that will make sense for us too. But we're very happy with everybody we have in case you see this. So we wait, wait till the end of the interview to ask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Corazon del Sol, obviously a, a new spot for you as well. Yeah, what, I haven't even been there yet. What is your role going to be with that? I just, I am the director of viticulture for the whole thing. So I will probably be going down there after Thanksgiving and just taking a look, um, seeing what we're doing down there. Wildly different farming. It's Uco Valley. It's, it's desert floor, you know, surrounded by the Andes. It's incredible looking down there. The vineyard is right next to this old dry riverbed. Uh, super, super rocky, like Chateauneuf de Pop style, big boulders, or like the Rocks District. It's kind of how the vineyard looks, and it's a mix of VSP and bush vines. Uh, we have crazy things. Well, I think Dr. Ivana was the first person to plant Grenache down there. And so we have Gravache, Mouvedra, Syrah, some Cab, Merlot. You know, and in very, very harsh, like farming client climate, and so I'm really excited to work with that because for multiple reasons. But you know, what's really cool about down there is is you're because you're in that harsh environment, you're doing everything you can to fight uh, ripening, mm -hmm. right? Which which in Oregon typically you're doing everything you can to make sure that you get good ripening, and then Napa's somewhere in the middle where it's gonna get ripe no matter what, but can you speed it up or slow it down? And so it's kind of it's fun because, you know, up here we're definitely gonna be leaf pulling, you know? And then down the Uco Valley or Napa, leaf pulling might be a really bad idea because you're gonna get all the color you need, you know? You're gonna get all the, everything that you need out of it, but you might be making choices on like, on slowing down ripening. And that might be, you know, something as simple as not tilling so that the vineyard floor stays much cooler. And you know, warm, the warmer the soil is, the quicker your ripening will be. And so then you're in a place like Uco Valley where nothing's gonna be growing on the floor anyway. You know, it's just gonna be boulders. So how do you cool that soil? So there, it is gonna, there's gonna be some interesting challenges in like making sure that these plants like have a long, even, slow ripening. And then also just addressing the fact that they're on the desert floor. 
That's going to be a fun challenge. I'm yeah. Looking forward to seeing how that goes for you. Um, obviously, with, with your new role, you're, you're managing people, and you're managing people kind of throughout an organization in three different places. So tell me about that uh, sort of management and teams, uh, team building style. Uh, how has it gone so far, and what are your kind of thoughts on the future? I think it's gone good. I'm definitely like, uh, I believe that uh, if, if um, people want to make you proud because you've worked hard to make sure that they have a good life, that they'll work harder for you, and that if people are afraid of you, that they're going to work just hard enough to not get yelled at. And so that's kind of my whole strategy. And like I know that me personally, if there is um, management above me that is like micromanaging me, like I do terribly. I just don't respond well to that. And if you give me complete free reign, I do really, really well. I've also worked with people that if you give them complete free reign, they do terribly. So I think for me, it's, it's mostly like, you know, you figure out what people are comfortable with and then you keep them accountable to that. I know that some people really like a schedule and some people a schedule is oppressive. So I just, I just treat everybody as an individual and, you know, manage them that way within reason because <laughs> I mean, we all have to work together, and I would generally like people to be happy. So I don't treat all my friends the same, you know? I've never heard a book quite that way. I like that. Uh, you talked earlier about kind of your initial sort of impressions of the viticulture in Oregon. Uh, obviously, you've been part of the change, and you've, you've talked about others who are part of the change as well. How has the viticulture part of the industry specifically changed since you've been aware of it? And what do you kind of, as you look around at the valley, especially at viticulture now, what does it kind of look like to you? Well, I think it, uh, the easiest way to relate it, I think, is to like the natural wine movement. When the natural wine movement started happening, and even the natural wine movement's changing now. Now it, the natural wine movement has much less to do with your use of yeast and sulfur and much more to do with farming and, and how it's farmed, which is cool. But when the natural wine movement first started, I think it was just scoffed at and not taken seriously. And then when that market share started growing and growing and growing and growing, like people started being like, okay, like this is viable. You know, it doesn't matter who's to blame for it, but like it's very viable. The same thing happened in farming. Like I think, um, excuse me. So, like, like Mimi Castile was described as a pie-in-the-sky farmer, you know, when she was first talking about the way she farmed. Or people like Dan Rinke, you know, like, you know, Voodoo Vintners, books like that, you know, came out. And, and people were very quick to scoff, uh, mostly because they didn't understand, which is what, you know, people do when something new happens. They lean into what they know um, as being more important than what the other person knows. And then, and, you know, and now... Now Mimi's speaking at Napa Rise, and you know what I mean? So like, like the, the idea of going organic and being regenerative now, like if you are going to sell wine in restaurants now, if, if you say, oh yeah, we're certified sustainable, people are like, okay, so what? Are you organic? You know, like that's just where, where it's gone now. Like, like the buyers themselves definitely want to believe in the products that they're being sold. And so suddenly, out of nowhere, organic and regenerative systems have a marketing value. Where before, it was just kind of an extra fun story. And now it's like, it's a critical piece to move, you know, wine that you want to move. 
and even even Monsanto has regenerative on their radar, and they're making <laughs> regenerative products. You know, Cargill is too. Like all Bayer, obviously they own Monsanto. But if you look up Bayer regenerative, there's all these websites now about how Bayer is regenerative and focused on regenerative, you know, systems. And so it's definitely like. I would say that the terminology is, is gonna be co-opted just like organic was co-opted, just like sustainable was co-opted. I can't wait for the next term. I'll figure it out, hopefully, before other people, but. Yeah, you should probably trademark it as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, with that said, that's, I mean, that's a lot of change in a fairly short amount of time. Yeah. Where is it going next? What's, what's sort of the future for the industry, specifically viticulture? So I think like total system design is gonna be the next big change. Like I said, VSP is time consuming, but it's also not necessarily the best for plant health. Um, you know, like, like multi-cropping systems. Like I think sheep is, should become standard, but I think in the next 15 years, you're gonna see it much more widely adopted. It's, it's funny because people are like, wow, this new system, but if you look at the history of viticulture, like there was a long time where they didn't have mower decks and Kubotas. So like grazing is an obvious part of any sort of orchard or berry system. And so I think you're gonna go to see so much more of that and, and it being much more widely adopted. And hope, hopefully it will be more like third party systems where, I mean, I don't think everybody can have sheep, but the availability of, of good third party um, grazers to come in, I think you're gonna see a lot more of that. And I think that that space is competitive. Um, and, and I think I think we'll see that and I think we'll see a lot more automation in vineyards and um, I think that should be widely adopted. Um, I think that we should, we, we should see much more electric, remotely controlled tractor work for multiple reasons. If we're gonna continue to spray things, like getting a human out of that driver's seat should be a priority. You know, cause those, those are things that like, that's my big beef with these systemics that are known carcinogens or mutagenic, you know, like, yes, they're much cheaper than organic systems, but you're not like, you're not like removing that cost. Like that cost is now bared by that person spraying it, whether it's through health or, you know, what, whatever happens to that. But like your, your bottom line is like you're making that money because somebody else is being exploited. And I think the easiest way to prevent that, because like conventional systems aren't gonna go away no matter how much I want them to, but the easiest way to like, to like remove that burden that is, that is pushed onto a, a small family, you know, you know, just get that person on a driver's seat. And I don't think it is removing jobs because we'll need operators for those things too, you know. Like, yeah, you might be able to run it from your phone, but somebody's got to work on it. Somebody's got to have that phone, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that is, is the future of, of, especially perennial systems, is more remote controlled, more AI, more drones, more analysis, you know, that is done remotely. Like, not, not I, I would say that, like, we're not that far out from crop estimates being done completely with cameras and not interns wandering the field. So, I don't know, that's where I think it's going. I think that in the long run, that will be much more equitable for people and the planet.
What about your future in the industry? Obviously, you're, you're brand new in this role. What are you looking ahead to? What are some accomplishments you'd maybe like to have? Um, I think within the next two years, I'd like to be president of the Oregon Wine Board. No, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I really want, I really want my own farm and my own space, and, and, uh, but you know that, that takes time, and I'm a few million dollars short from that goal right now. And um, you know, I'm trying, I farm my own vineyard on the side, and I'm definitely experimenting more on that side than anywhere else, because like, I'm the one that bears the consequences of it. And um, it is funny what, what you find out uh, when you run hilarious experiments. Some of it's insane. Like this vineyard, this vineyard is a pretty low pressure site, and so we decided to not spray it, you know, on a seven-day schedule and be organic, and we didn't have any powdery mildew. You know, it got sprayed just a few times last season, and they're old vines, so they're definitely more able to deal with disease pressure, I think. But it is interesting to like test these dogmatic truths that the industry have, and then just giggle about how hilariously untrue they are. Or, or test things that you believe to be true and find out that you are hilariously uneducated on that subject. So I definitely want my own place to play. Um, I, like, I have a, a lot of ideas and a lot of things I want to do. And for the time being, everybody but me is going to benefit from those. <laughs> and I would like to be the sole beneficiary of my ideas eventually. Would that include making wine too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What about uh, sort of outside of outside of wine? Anything else in your life that you're looking ahead to? Uh, goals, accomplishments. Um. Yeah, I'd like to have another kid so that my child doesn't have only child syndrome. We take offense at that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of five boys, so. Um, which is probably why I got into wrestling. But, you know, I have, I have lots of goals, but one funny thing about my personality is what I'm passionate about changes like bi-weekly. So it will be completely different, you know, next week from, you know, what I love this week, which is the, a benefit of that is I'm, I'm, I'm widely read because I like need to be an expert on things, and I will like like hyper focus on something until I like feel like I have a decent understanding of it. So I don't know, I don't know what I'm into. I think that for sure I'll probably dig pretty hard into agricultural drone and AI stuff, just so that I'm not behind the times on it. And that equipment's coming. We're actually looking at. Uh, uh, getting some, uh, getting a, a monarch for the Napa property, and so that'll be fun to rip that thing apart. Um, I really want to do spray drones, but those they spray like two and a half gallons an acre, which is not necessarily enough for organic systems. It's really good for systemics or herbicides or or maybe like light foyer applications. But um, I'm looking forward to digging into those systems. Uh, what else? I'd like to be a better partner and father. That's probably my biggest priority. Uh, and go on vacation more. Yeah. Those things definitely correlate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, last question then for you. Um, 
uh, if someone were to approach you for advice or words of wisdom on getting into the Oregon wine industry in some way, what would you tell them? Apply. Just apply. Like, there's plenty of points of entry. Absolutely. Um, we need people in all positions and, and be, be patient, you know, like a, a lot of people like to skip steps and go to the top, which is nice, but you know, I didn't skip steps and, and I was very intentional about the places that I went and the choices that I made because I, I really wanted to know, you know, all, all aspects of this business. And I think that because of that, I'm valuable hire for somebody. And I would say just, just take any, any job that you, know, you feel like might help further your career goals, whether it's working for uh, an old man farmer winemaker or it's working for somewhere major. Because I have friends that they never want their own space. And every choice I've made has been to make, enable me to one day have my own space. And I have friends that that is a nightmare to them. And, you know, to make a career out of it, then it might not be a small winery that you're looking at, at um, working at. It might be something larger with more upward mobility, something more corporate. Um, so just really, like, be realistic about what you want to do and end goal. If you want to get into national sales, like, Join somewhere that has a really good national sales team. You know, like you can go to a small business that flies out a few times a year, or you can go to a place that has really well-established sales networks and is talking about cogs all day long. You know, like it just really like, and you may not know what it is that you want to get into, and so just try it out. You'll you'll. A lot of people want to get into wine because it sounds really awesome, and then they find out it's a blue-collar job that pays blue-collar wages, and then they're quickly out. So just know that up, up front. It's a passion job, for sure. It's because it's what you want to do. Excellent. So all the questions that I have for you, uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover? I don't think so. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate your time and your stories and your candor, of course. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.